0: Hello, and welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Nico Franks. We hope you're safe and well, staying positive and testing negative. Today, we hear from NHS frontline doctor and filmmaker Nidhi Gupta, who returns to our airwaves after attending the recent film, drama, and documentary market Mia in Rome, which has been the first to run as a hybrid digital and physical event since the pandemic took hold. And. We'll also hear from British entrepreneur James Retchless, creator of a new children's property that has been decades in the making and which will make its debut in over a hundred countries across EMEA following a deal with Warner Media secured by Dominic Gardner at Jetpack Distribution who also joins us. Writer, producer and director Dr Nidhi Gupta was treating patients suffering from the most deadly symptoms when coronavirus hit, meaning she herself contracted the virus. She spoke to C21 about that experience, as well as the feature-length doc she is developing about the virus and a separate scripted sci-fi project in late August. Now she returns to discuss her visit to Mia in Rome, as well as her predictions for the future impact of the coronavirus on the TV industry we began by talking about the crowdfunding campaign for her doc, Start Stop Repeat, which aimed to raise £10,000. The
1: crowdfunding campaign ended about a month ago. We didn't hit our target, but it was actually a really positive campaign because I wouldn't have gone to Mia otherwise, actually. I hadn't even heard of it. And because of kind of all the people I'd met through the campaign, um, kind of the tendrils went out like around the world. And so we've gotten a lot more contributors, you know, from around the world were invited to MIA, Marcos Vanoli, who's head of the documentary Strands at MIA. He invited us um, and it was great. I mean, it's the first in-person festival properly with a market since Berlin. Italy was incredibly safe. Um, so when we got there, we couldn't leave the airport without a test um, that was negative, And everyone's wearing masks indoors and outdoors and everywhere Checked check the temperature every five minutes. So we felt very safe. And the MIA itself was incredibly safe. The security guards were on you, like kind of like a rash, like mask up, mask up. So that was really good. And the festival itself, were, I think like 700 people in, in person, which was incredible. And also just being in one of the national galleries in Italy, because that's where it was being held. So just surrounded by the Grand Masters, <laughs> which was pretty amazing. just had a really good time at the festival, met some absolutely lovely people that hoping to collaborate with. And in the process, we're also going for the um, BFI uh, Development Funds, for um, documentary. So it's all been a really positive, if exhausting experience because w- whilst all this has been happening, our sci-fi narrative that I'm writing and producing, we got into the PFM at the London Film Festival for that. So we were having to pitch for that as well, all at the same time as all of this is going on. Uh, which, I mean, again, the PFM was great and we had some really amazing meetings. So really hoping that we can, get that rolling as well but yeah everything seems to have come at once <laughs> which is uh, always the way isn't it? it's buses
0: so what was the atmosphere like at Mia were people tentative about networking things like that
1: actually people I think were just really happy to be seeing each other in person it was it was a real sense of oh my god I get to talk to you and see you in person and have a conversation and we can go get something to eat and we can just have a nice chat and you know as, as nice as it is kind of remotely from home, it doesn't replace that in-person meeting and just chancing, you know, people in the queue and sitting next to you, of course, with social distancing. And you can't replace that kind of experience. Yeah, it's just not possible to fully online replace that experience. And if nobody was really tentative. It was more just people were trying to be safe, but also just really grateful that Mia had managed to do such great organization so that we could all be safe and actually meet in person. So there's a bit of relief and like, oh, actually this feels like we could do this because kind of the whole of Europe is going through, it's starting with the second wave now. And, you know, people, people are producing, we're having productions up and running, um, but it's a case of, it was very much a, how do we do this for the foreseeable future? You know, we're not going to go back to the full in-person experience, you know, in the next six to 12 months. So we have to come up with ways of doing things that are safe, um, but also effective um, in terms of the networking, the talks and project development. So it was very much kind of I think Mia has set the templates of how it can be done, the blended online and in-person events. So I think I think very much they can be proud of themselves because I think they have set a standard.
0: And to what extent did the fact that you've already had COVID-19 and also your experience as a NHS frontline doctor, to what extent did those experiences make you more willing to take that risk, I suppose, in going to an event abroad?
1: Um, I think it probably um, reduced my concerns about myself. Um, I didn't go by myself. I went with my team. Um, but having read up online that Italy, you know, you can't leave the airport without a negative test. And they have masks and they uh indoors and outdoors. And they are just, you know, they're far more on it than we are in terms of testing, in terms of tracing. Um, you can't even get on a train without them checking your temperature. We couldn't go to any museum or gallery or entrance for the festival without checking our temperature. So it, it was that kind of just they are far more on it and and they are making sure people are obeying the rules so to that end it's you know I was and they've got lower rates from us actually they've got lower rates than us and I was looking at the rates we have higher rates so you know it's it's a case of actually I felt pretty safe out there I wasn't concerned about my safety and at no point did I feel unsafe or that people were potentially infecting me. And we are now getting you know, reports of reinfections, which is understandable when you have a second wave and you have mutations of the virus, it's to be expected. So, you know, I can't say that I can't and definitely won't be able to get infected the second time I can, but it was as safe as it was going to be.
0: And how is the documentary evolving as the pandemic evolves? The whole meaning behind the documentary is to examine those potentially un- unintended consequences of the pandemic. So how how are those shaping up?
1: Well, the second wave was entirely predictable. If you look at the history of pandemics, they've all had second, third waves. Um, so that was entirely predictable. Um, and in fact, behavioural scientists and epidemiologists and virologists and all the experts were saying, look, the moment the schools go back, the moment the universities go back, it was going to happen full stop. You know, we, we opened up in the summer. We were encouraged to go out. It was always going to happen. So from that perspective, it wasn't unintended, it wasn't kind of unprecedented, it was always going to happen. In terms of the unintended consequences, what's been really interesting is watching uh, the Black History Month, is how many documentaries, now all of these of course were, you know, produced before kind of coronavirus, the pandemic, Um, but they have a significantly bigger resonance I think now, because of the pandemic, because the Black Lives Matter um, and when you look at previous pandemics and how marginalised communities, oppressed communities and societies, um, the, kind of, that, the disparity has been exacerbated by and, and exaggerated by pandemics. Um, it, I just think it has a greater resonance and people are more willing to listen.
0: And are you confident that, you know, in London, for example, now we're in tier two, other parts of the country are, are going and have been in tier three for a while now, rather than the shutdown in production that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic. Do you think the production industry will be able to avoid that?
1: I think it depends on how we respond to these new restrictions in that Chris Whitty very clearly said that these weren't enough. And it's, you know, he's the expert. And all of us in the medical profession, we're pretty much, yeah, this isn't going to work in terms, it's not going to bring down the numbers as fast and um, as significant, I think, as we would like. So to that end, then the question is so Wales is going into a circuit breaker lockdown. You know, the question is if we, if England will. If we do, then by definition, you know, production will have to cease during that time. From from my perspective, I'm looking more at spring next year because I think all the new restrictions that have been put in this time, instead of saying we'll review in three weeks, we're reviewing a couple of weeks, like no six months, which I think is a sensible kind of time frame, but also then the I think then the rules will have settled, people have gotten used to things and you know, hopefully we'll have a vaccine that will be actually employed then. And so I think it will be much less risky to then um, have a production in terms of from the point of view of having, you know, okay, we're going to go into a circuit breaker, lockdown for two weeks, everything shut down. And I think right now that is a high risk in the UK that if you're in production or looking to go in production in the next couple of months that you might have to shut down because the current restrictions aren't going to be enough when the question is whether they just bite the bullet and go down for another kind of absolute two week three week lockdown
0: and how are you balancing your work on the production side and development side with your work as a frontline NHS doctor how is that going at the moment
1: well I'm quarantining at the moment <laughs> so I'm working from home i doing a huge amount of paperwork and doing zoom calls which is fine actually um I mean, our numbers in terms of my department, we're now back up to pre-COVID levels. You know, we're, we're just back to our, our normal workload. Because London, even though we're going into, we've gone into tier two, if you look at our numbers in no a way near as bad as the Northwest, unfortunately, you know, unfortunately for the Northwest, the numbers are doubling every two to three weeks. So we're looking at the numbers, you know, touch wood, we're not getting as bad as in the first wave. Um, there's no guarantee, though, of course, that won't, you know, change. Our main concerns is not just only maintaining our COVID services, but it's actually we're getting wanting to provide the other services because that's where it's been one of the biggest issues was uh people with non-COVID conditions were not coming into hospital, were not getting the right healthcare. And so we've had excess deaths because of that. And they are COVID-related because had COVID not happened, they probably wouldn't have died, but they're not exactly from coronavirus, and it's about providing people with, a, with good healthcare for COVID, but also, you know, if you have a heart attack, you need to get seen, you know, we need to look after that. Um, so yeah, right now I'm just focusing on pathways and paperwork, which um, to some extent is actually quite nice because I rarely get a chance. I'm normally kind of trying to do it in between patients.
0: And just finally going back to physical and hybrid online events. The connections that you've been making um, both online and offline, in person. To what extent were those connections you already had, um, and to what extent have, have buyers and distributors been willing to meet new people? Um, because that's something we're hearing from in our conversations: is that those established relationships are continuing over Zoom and things like that. But it's it's those the formulation of new relationships that people are finding difficult to do.
1: Well, I think this goes back to. The difficulty of of bumping into people, talking to people when you're on Zoom. So, and this goes to kind of friends as well and family. Those people that we've already that you've already got a connection with, it's easier to maintain contact on Zoom, you know, and and it's comfortable and it's not forced. But trying to make a new contact is actually long lasting. Because that's what the relationship, about this industry is what the about. It's about long lasting relationships. You know, you'll have a meeting, you know, with a company, you'll meet them again at the next festival six months later, you'll meet them again in six months, and then actually two, three years down the line, actually like, okay, you've you know, this is now grown and now we're making that, you know, now we can actually work together because you know, um, our interests have aligned. It, it's that initial meeting. So for me, Mia was about making new connections um and actually um, catching up because a company was there that a sales company that I would, I'd already met in Berlin. It was like, oh great, I can actually meet up with you again. But it wouldn't have been appropriate for me to ask for a Zoom meeting with them. And and it really was, oh let's just have a catch up, let's have a cup of coffee. And it's great because now kind of that relationship is now growing. But that wouldn't have occurred if on Zoom. That you know, that particular relationship. So I think, as I said, it's very difficult if you don't know somebody. To kind of have a proper relationship with them, I think it is 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 very difficult. And actually, we found that with the PFM in the, I was quite lucky uh, in the companies that we met. At least two of them, I already had a, a you know a a sort sort of level of relationship with. And so, kind of, it just made those meetings easier and them more receptive to kind of ongoing kind of conversations. Whereas, in kind of the others where we not met, you could feel there was a bit of distance.
0: And have you got your eye on any other markets? to attend in person and obviously that depends on whether or not they're shifting to that hybrid model as well
1: yeah i mean i'm looking forward to berlin late february because i know that they announced a couple of months ago they wanted a full in-person event germany's numbers are going up i don't know whether they'll be willing to do that i haven't booked it yet because i i really want to see what what they're doing. So it I am I'm, I'm I think pretty much most people will be waiting until mid to late January to decide whether they're actually going to go to Berlin physically. I would really like to go to Berlin, but also it's dependent on whether so at the moment Germany's on the quarantine list for the UK. So it's not just a wait, a case of taking a week to go to Berlin. It's about the fact that when you come back, you can't go anywhere for two weeks even though, again, their numbers are lower than ours. You know, it's, you know, it's about kind of balancing, you know, whether the in-person events, if it goes ahead, is of value. I think personally Berlin will be, and I will probably will kind of take the quarantine hit because I do enjoy Berlin a lot. Um, And I think it's the first big European festival of the year. I think everyone is just basically taking it week by week, aren't we? We're just seeing what's happening because, you know, you could book now for Berlin and it will be cancelled a week beforehand you know, or because you just don't know what's happening.
0: Dr. Nidhi Gupta. Created by British entrepreneur James Retchless, Master Moly is based upon an original idea he conceived as an imaginative bedtime story for his children. The animation follows an adventurous mole who lives deep in a burrow under Windsor Castle in the bustling city of Mole Town, where he is the keeper of a magical book which has the power to bring peace between humans and moles. The heartwarming tale features an award-winning cast including Warwick Davis, Julie Walters, Gemma Arterton and Richard E. Grant and will debut with a 30-minute special on Boomerang in November followed by a 52 by 11-minute series in 2021. I spoke to Retschless and Dominic Gardner, CEO at Jetpack Distribution, about getting a new kid 's property off the ground in a competitive market with Retchless beginning by taking me through the origins of the master story
2: Well, I suppose it all started about twenty two years ago, Nico when um, my my two daughters, Hetty and Tatty, were tiny and uh, I used to make up uh, bedtime stories around this little character called Master Mole, who obviously was a mole who lived where else but Mole Town underneath Windsor Castle. And then when they went to sleep, I don't know what possessed me to do this, but I wrote all the stories down, 260 of them, something, something, something crazy anyway. So that was a long time ago. It just became a sort of institution at bedtime. And then fast forward about 20 years, I got very ill and got, uh, cancer, went into hospital, and it all looked a bit bleak. And they brought some of the stories in. And I thought, oh, my God, I'd forgotten all about them. Anyway, I got, I suddenly started getting better. So I thought, blimey, this, maybe this is a sign. Maybe I should do something about this. And so I, I got better. And I think partly because of the kind of my, you know, spiritual, I don't know, condition got better because of remembering all these stories and remembering all the bedtimes and the happy days, etc. So then I went from there to a place called Physic Garden in Chelsea and I wrote a business plan and over three rounds, nearly three million quid. uh, And in fact, in this fourth round, where we're raising another three million quid, we've raised about 2.1 million so far in, I don't know, record time in about, you know, 45 working days or something. And I think it's, It's mainly because we've won this big contract from Warner, uh, which Dominic uh, was absolutely instrumental from Jetpack, um, was instrumental in signing for us with, with Warner Media in Europe, Middle East and Africa and the UK.
0: The road to success in kids' TV is littered with the kind of hopes and dreams of individual creators who have had, you know, those hopes crushed by the kind of either development hell, things like that, just not being able to get funding. Why do you think you were able to succeed where, the, where others have failed?
2: I think it's probably a mixture of about three or four things. A, I do think Master Moley and all his characters, uh, all his friends, I, I, I really think it's quite an original story um, and stories. and it, it certainly grabbed the imagination of all the children that Sort of put him in front of, um, but secondly we've raised a lot of money I mean you can 't do these things without being well financed and uh, we've been fortunate in that we've got this extraordinary investor base of some uh forty five who are have been they 've just been incredibly supportive coming in round after round, so we 've raised a lot of money, so that's number two number three. We've been able to put a really fantastic team together, uh, including Jetpack, including our producer Tony Nottage, and all of the people that come on the creative side. And fourthly, we've been able to work well together and collaboratively, and have a lot of fun. I I genuinely think, you know, it's a the, the fact is we're all having a huge amount of fun, and you've got to enjoy, you know, what you do and. People are working over and beyond. And then of course, that you know, so we've got this amazing broadcaster in Warner Media uh, in 119 countries. So you put those, whatever number it was, four things, four or five things together, you have the makings of a winning formula. I mean, we're not, we got a long way to go yet. Don't, you know, make no mistake about it. You know, we're like three years into this, but we're creating a long-term brand.
0: And in your conversations with the investors, was that what you emphasised, the potential for a commercial brand and using examples like Pepper Pig that have obviously been so lucrative? Is that what the, the investors are interested in?
2: I think they originally came in because I didn't ask them for very much money. <laughs> I, I, you know, if you ask people for huge amounts of money on the first occasion, you know, you won't get many people to sign. But we asked 30 people five grand and we got them SEIS. In other words, really big tax breaks. And so it cost them, you know, less than two and a half K after tax breaks. Well, if you see the character and you see all the stories and you and, and someone's asking you for two and a half, you're probably in. And then as we went forward, we gained their trust because we meet with them twice a year. We reassure them about what's going on. They saw the progress that we made between each shareholder meeting. And then every time we asked them for some more money, it was obviously a bit more each time, they they came in. And Dominic,
0: as a distributor, when you're looking to come on board a property, in terms of that balance between a property that's got a lot of investment behind it uh, and the actual appeal of the character and the story, which is more important?
3: I think for us, it's a balance of things that attract us. The story itself and the character are really important and, and central, fundamental. But there's lots of good stories out there and lots of good characters. I think what also attracts us, as James hinted on, is the team behind it. And actually, with when I first met James, we, we had we'd not worked together before, so it was a... Um, a classic, you know, uh, face-to-face meeting in Annecy that that we had a contact, uh, w- one of the producers, Tony, Tony Nottage. I met Tony, you know, a couple of times, years and years. That was all it took, I think, just to give me the, okay, I remember Tony Nottage. I remember, you know, he went on to produce a, a feature, and so... I thought, well, I think this meeting is worth taking on his advice. I met with James and, you know, when I met with James, I, I recognised that this project, you know, he, wasn't, he hadn't written these because he wanted to create a big brand. he written these stories because he truly believed in the character and used them to entertain his, his kids, you know. 260 stories, he, he jokes. I mean to the well, that's five seasons done right there. So we're, we're very much... <laughs> We're very much ahead of the game in our development process. Of course, as James alludes to, there was a little bit of money to help things get off the ground, but really what that had built for James was a great team. And then I think when I left, as you you know, you can see from James's quiet and shy uh, manner, that um, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of tenacity within within James's ambition. And uh, and and I know I've met lots of producers, and you you know what it takes, how hard it is, how long it's get a show off the ground. You need that tenacity. You need that. You know, there's not. There's, there was never. This was not ever not going to happen. It was in some way, shape, or form. It was going to happen because James was going to make it happen. And for us, that gives us the confidence that we can attach ourselves.
0: Is it reductive to say that? It's actually really important for that central character to be an animal that doesn't have kind of there isn't existing you know children's famous mole. I mean, not as far as I can recall. You know, if this was a piglet, then that would that would not work. But
3: you know, I think what you know, we always look at obviously first thing we look at you know what why do we love the character what was the quality of the series and then and then it's really step two when we take a step back and we look at. Let's look at where the opportunity is in the market, but also, you know, has this been done before? And you'd be surprised in any animal you can think of in the world. You think it's never been done, but then suddenly you find there's three or four or whatever. You know, so, you know, moles, I think there is a great timing in the world for moles today. We've done a lot of work in how, really, how the personality of moles fits with today's audience. Um... We've got brand work on that that, that really enables a, the audience of today could, to associate with, with some of the behaviours of, of what moles do. So in that sense, it's sometimes timing. I think every animal kind of has its Is I think moles right now look like they're about
2: to have theirs. They've all been done. Mice, dogs, you know, I mean, they're all bears, you know, and I was actually thinking about, well, what, what? what is kind of a nice, cute little chap that is kind of cuddly and, and it hasn't been done to death? And, and um, of course, I, I thought of a mole. I remember going to a field in the Cotswolds with the kids, and there are all these molehills in the field. My elder daughter turned to me and said, Daddy, I know what goes on down there. <laughs> because I've been telling you all these stories about, you know, mole town, and molehills, and it's just something very, there's something quite sort of like secretive about, oh, I wonder what, you know, I wonder what they do down there.
0: You were both at Kids Screen Summit in Miami in February, which feels like a lifetime ago, and that was the last time pretty much the kids' TV industry was all able to to meet together. How much has the pandemic disrupted or accelerated?
2: It's actually been good for us. I mean, uh, that's rather... I don't know, ghoulish thing to say, but I don't mean it in a horrible way. I, what I mean is that, as you know, Netflix's subscriptions have gone through the roof. Disney Plus has gone through the roof. HBO Max, you know, they've all been launched at a time where people basically have been confined to home. So just in the appetite for content is huge, which I think is one of the reasons why we did the deal with our lovely broadcaster, in such a very short space of time. I mean, we, we first met with them in, I think it was like August, September. Uh, and then of course we saw them kids screen in uh, January, February, whenever it was. And then by July, we'd actually done the deal because there was a clear indication to all of the broadcasters for a need for increased amount of content. Because of you know, the fact that everybody was going through content quite quickly because they were stuck at home. So in a in a kind of strange kind of way, it's been it's played you know, it's played into our hands, so to speak.
0: Dominic, you've got a library full of children's and family content, animation and, and live action. So I imagine you've been pretty busy. And making hay while the sun shines. But you mentioned how your involvement with Master Molly came up was through a face-to-face meeting with James. So obviously you haven't really been doing many of those. How concerned are you about your pipeline of original content coming through?
3: The pipeline side of things has been pretty good so far, but I imagine the longer this goes on for, I was talking to somebody this morning about how the virtual MIPCOM has gone. And On a selling side, it's actually gone very well for us. We've had very good meetings with our, you know, regular returning customers of, you know, good friends. And that's been, that has stood up quite well. I think where I really have noted that the meetings with new producers has really dropped off, where in some virtual markets that new producers have like Cartoon Forum, they, they've changed the, you know, done it very, very well. And there's, uh, you know, CMC. But I, I think come October, I haven't, there's not been that platform for new producers. And whether, whether that's the same, that a lot, I haven't spoken to many other distributors about this to see whether they've experienced the same that we haven't had the, you know, the people who stop by the stand, that you're just not getting that sort of in, impromptu meeting, particularly for. You know, producers who are just things, uh, sole creatives, or you know, people starting up in the business, swapping business cards and being introduced to "Hello, have, this is my friend. Have you met so and so?" and and it is a, a huge source of content for us. We meet many, many people, both on the buying and selling through those meetings. And the sooner they come back, better so, because I think we're you know I think personally, and it's having a you know an impact on us.
0: James Retchless and Dominic Gardner. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast soon, but in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and on social media. Thanks for listening.